Well, let's uh, stand everyone and read the Word of God. John 12, starting at verse 27. And we'll read till 36. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have, glor I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, The voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was going to die. The crowd that answered him said, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Father, we thank you for your word again, like we do every week. We are excited to dive in, and I know that we all come in with uh, different thoughts throughout the week. Um, some of us have come in with an encouraging week, some with a trying week, um, some with an emotional week. Wherever we're at, Lord, I ask you, to, ask you to meet us here today. And I know that when we leave here, you'll have spoken to us, and I just pray that we're encouraged and we're strengthened and have more resolve to go after you in your way. We pray this, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Dan and I, when we get together, often ask ourselves a question. It's not every week, but it's periodic. And it's basically, it goes something like this. As a result of studying the scriptures this year, or this month, or whatever it may be, time-wise, uh, what has had to change in your theology? So what have you believed for a number of years, or for, or for as long as you've been a Christian, but as you've been taught and you've been reading the scriptures and listening to people, what's had to change in your theology? It's a great question because what it does is it exposes us. It exposes us to see, are we teachable? Do we think we're the first people to ever get all of the Bible right in its understanding? Um, I think, um, I know at least for myself, I would never say that I know the Word of God intimately in terms of inside and out, and that I'm unteachable to the point that I know everything in the Scriptures. Um, this last week alone I had to change something uh, small in my, in my thinking, but I bring this up to say that uh, this passage that we're going to do today uh, was one of the fundamental, I guess you call shifters in the way I thought about God. So I had, a, I had this preset notion of how God thought of me in the midst of certain trials and temptations and whatnot, and uh, how He must have thought about me when I faced those things. And after reading this passage, it's been probably one of the top ten passages in my life to help me relate to God. And uh, I'm really hoping that if you have my old thinking <laughs> that I had a number of years ago that this passage will do the same for you that will trans, uh, translate to your life so that you learn to think about God differently 
maybe you, well, I'm sure some of you are already there and you're already in a place now where, where I'm at in terms of the way I understand this. So this won't be new, but it'll just cement it in your head further that you're viewing God correctly. So this is an exciting passage for me. And um, I know I read uh, 27 through 36, but we're actually only going to focus on the first two verses. We're going to spend the whole entire sermon on the two verses because everything that stems out of that it, uh, will spill over into the next verses as well. So let's look at this. Um, but before we dive in, I want to help us remember where we're at in the passage. Um, remember, this is the tri triumphant entry has just occurred, starting at the beginning of uh, chapter 12, verse 12. He's coming to Jerusalem, and uh, the people are going crazy for him. And uh, this passage finds itself in that same context. It seems to occur on the same day as the triumphant entry, but later on in the days he's speaking to the crowds. Now remember what he had just taught the crowds in the previous verses. He had taught the crowds the fundamental principle or the fundamental rule about the kingdom of God. We find that in verse 23 and 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Of course, he was speaking in this um, an, uh, metaphor to the verse he said before, that his hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So the fundamental rule that he just taught the crowds was death will produce life or eternal life is impossible without death. So Jesus full well knew why he had come and why he was there. He knew the purpose of, uh, the purpose of his coming was to go to the cross to bring salvation to the whole world. Now remember, into this context, the people are yelling, Hosanna, which meant save us. They're waving palm branches, which is a sign of victory in the uh, Jewish culture. They've even given him the title of king. Nothing in their theology or thinking has, has their Messiah suffering in any way. He, there used to be a crossless Messiah, for lack of a better word. So even though he understood what he had come, the crowds had completely missed it. So if he was going to truly fulfill this title of Hosanna, and truly being their king, this cross was an absolute necessity. But what's interesting, even though there was no doubt in his mind why he had come and the purpose for why he had come, that didn't mean that he was free from emotional struggle, knowing that he had to go to the cross. There was, he wasn't free in that, and you see this in verse 27. He says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. <coughs> All of us are to some degree familiar with the events of the crucifixion, and we understand probably why Jesus, Jesus was troubled here. I mean, um, he had to face suffering in a very physical and emotional way. I, I mean, he was about to be betrayed by one of his disciples, who he'd been <coughs> with for three years. He was going to be denied by another. He was going to face mass-wide rejection. The same people crying out to him to be their king was later going to say crucify him. He's going to be publicly humiliated as he was beaten, spat upon, going to hang naked on a cross. He was going to be flogged, going to face, uh, face a mo uh, extreme pain, and to the point that he almost basically died in that flogging. And as if this wasn't bad enough, he knew at some point when he was going to bear the weight of the sins of the world on the cross that God was going to separate himself from him. He was going to lose that intimacy for those moments on the cross in order to bear the full weight of the sin of the world. 
That's why Jesus cried out in the, on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew this was, he was going to be utterly and totally alone in those moments. So when you look at these aspects of Jesus, you understand why he's probably troubled here, and why his soul is troubled. But the temptation of us now is just to move on and say, well, that's, we understand why he was troubled, and so let's continue. I would say to do that would be an absolute tragedy for us in this passage. And it's such an important thing, that's such a big magnitude for me, that I really want to spend a lot of time on what this means for him to be troubled, so you understand exactly what's going on in Jesus' psyche here, when he's, when he's wrestling with this idea of the cross. So let's start here by defining what the word troubled means. Troubled, in the Greek context, which is easy for you to look up on your own, um, but it's the word terasso, and it's used in different ways in the New Testament. One definition of, the, of terasso, to be troubled, is when we, in John 5, 7. You remember the pools at the water of Bethesda, when the lame man is laying beside the pool? And he's waiting for the waters to be stirred up. Well, that word stirred up or to shake up or agitate is to be troubled. In John 12, 27, I remember Pat saying this. Uh, he thought the only verse he had by memory in the Bible was that Jesus wept. <laughs> right? And we turned that definition upside down on the poor guy. Because we thought he was crying because he was emotionally sad about the state of, the, uh, of Lazarus' death. Because he was so close to him. We found out that he was troubled there. In other words, he was disappointed or stirred or shaken up by the people's unbelief around them. Right? The same word occurs there in John 12, 27. So he was disappointed and agitated over their, over their unbelief. In Matthew 14, 26, the word troubled there is used to uh, describe the disciples' um, emotions when they see Jesus walking on water. It says they were they were they cried out like they were they were uh, they were terrified of what, witnessing this event. Their souls were troubled. But most importantly, I think for us in this definition comes from Acts fifteen twenty four, and this passage speaks of someone being led away from God's truth, led away from God's truth, or a state of confusion in regards to one's own faith. Look at this in Acts 15.24. He says, this is the, the Jerusalem Council. Um, remember, the Jerusalem Council was a major, major piece of history for the Christian church. The, uh, Jew, uh, the, in, the Gentiles have received uh, the message that you can be saved through Christ alone. And what happens is these Jewish missionaries show up and start saying, no, 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 it's Christ plus circumcision. It's Christ plus the law of Moses. And the people are going, what do we do? Is this true? And so uh, Paul and Barnabas are sent, and they say this, Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed or troubled you with their words, unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us to send Barnabas and Paul. So what's going on? They believe that God's truth is salvation through Christ alone. These false apostles or these false teachers come in and start disturbing them, unsettling them, saying, no, 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 that's not true. You can stray away from that. And they're creating confusion in them. And they, and they don't know what, which way to embrace. Okay? But even more importantly, it's found in Galatians 1, 6, 8. And we need to turn there to, together as a church. So look at Galatians 1, 6, 8. 1, 6 to 8. After you hit Corinthians, you'll 
you'll find Galatians. You'll see the exact same thing going on here as in Acts 15. So Galatians 1, verse 6. This is Paul speaking. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you, troubled, and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So again, how are these guys disturbing the church? These false teachers are trying to give them a different gospel, leading them away from truth. They're trying to give them a gospel that's contrary to the one preached to them. Again, confusing them in their Christian faith. Now when you understand that definition of troubled, and you insert that into what Jesus is going on here in his own life in verse 27, you start to get a picture of what he's going through. You see... He has to cry out to God. He says, to, he says, my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Save me from this hour. Why does he cry this out? Because the inner battle in Jesus is not because of the physical and emotional pain he's going to face at the cross. But the fight within him to avoid it altogether. There's a fight in him to avoid it altogether. And again, we always think of Jesus as, oh... He was scared of going to the cross because of the pain, the emotional stuff. Yes, he was. But listen, this trouble here, he is, he is considering ditching the mission and purpose for why he's come. And everything in his flesh is saying, don't do it. Disobey, disobey, disobey the Father. And he's troubled so much so he cries out to God to help him in this moment of despair. It's massive to recognize this church because he knew why he'd come. He understood his mission. He knew the prophecies concerning himself. I mean, it was the crowds and the disciples who missed his purpose. He told them he was to go to the cross, and they said, May it never be. You can't be a crossless Messiah. Forget it. I mean, Jesus, that's why he had to specifically and repeatedly teach these guys, Yes, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. He knew it was necessary for him to go. It was the people that didn't believe he was. But nevertheless, he still, in this moment, wanted out. He wanted out. Uh, my commentary uh, I re read by the name of Murray, his last name is Murray, did a great uh, one-liner. Um, sometimes these guys are just more elo eloquent in their speech than I am. But he says this, Jesus, in turmoil of spirit, shrinks from the fearful experience before him, and in his address to God, seeks avoidance of it. Isn't that good? It's exactly what's going on. From the heart and mind of Christ. Now what's interesting about that. Is that. He had a conversation with Peter. About this very issue. In terms of his thinking about him. Avoiding the cross. Remember that in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16. Look what happens here. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. What does Jesus do? He turns to him and says, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. 
for Jesus, for Peter, I should say, to entertain this idea of Jesus not going to the cross and avoiding it is enough for Jesus to turn to him in anger and say, you are just like Satan in your thinking, and you are just uh, you're a stumbling block to me, and you're not setting your, your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests. Yet here Jesus in John 12 is on the same path as Peter in terms of his thinking. He is saying, he is saying, I need, I'm, he's contemplating avoiding the cross, avoiding the cross, avoiding the cross. Jesus in that moment in his flesh is, 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 is tempted to set his interest on man's interest and not on God's. Isn't that quite remarkable when you think of that? See, what I'm trying to do is get this out of your head, if it's in your head. Don't think of a Disneyland Jesus. This is, the, this is the Disneyland Jesus. Well, he was fully God, and so when he came to earth, I mean, it was easy for him to avoid temptations. He didn't struggle like us. And the only time he struggled, actually, was in the last 24 hours before the, in the garden. So, yeah, he was sweating blood there and, and whatever, but he only struggled on the night of the Passover till the morning of the cross, and, the, and, and other than that, he was okay. <laughs> Get that out of your head. He's not a Disneyland Jesus that everything is... Everything's fine. That he had legitimate, legitimate temptation to avoid the cross and disobey God, just like you and I would when we face our temptations. So again, it's really important that we understand this. But it's important just to recognize not the severity of his temptation, but the duration of it. The duration of this temptation. Again. We might think, okay, well, we know he suffered and his soul was troubled on the night of the Garden of Gethsemane because he asked Jesus, or God there, to take this cup from me and he was sweating blood and so on. But what's interesting here is that's on the night of the Passover. This is on the day of the triumphant entry. The Palm Sunday is four days prior to the night of Garden of Gethsemane. Passover started on the Thursday evening. So, or that meal, yeah, and the night, that night in the garden was on Thursday evening. So here we have him four days out, crying out to God for, um, for help in this issue. This means that this was not a blip in his emotional stability. This was an ongoing temptation that he was experiencing for days. Again, this internal fight to disobey or not to, or, or to obey or disobey his father was not a one-time event, but an ongoing issue that lasted days. And again, the crazy thing about this is if he followed through and didn't go to the cross, he would have disobeyed the father and would have been full of sin. <laughs> he would have sinned. So aren't we grateful in that moment and over those days, the course of the days, that he didn't set, that he didn't embrace um, those thoughts to the point that he carried them out like Peter did and he chose to submit his will to the Father and obey him despite all the emotional feelings he was going through it's, a, it's, an, it's an amazing thing for us and here's where we learn something important from Christ that entertaining sin and following through on it are two different things entertaining sin or being tempted and following through on those temptations are two different issues. It's important to say this, I think, because sometimes in Christian circles we get this confused. We get this confused. I know people that I've spoken to, I've even experienced things in my life 
When I've been tempted to sin against God, I often go in a self-condemnation mode. Here's, here's how the self-talk sounds when I'm tempted severely. Well, man, if I was just stronger as a, as a Christian and more, of a, and a, a bit more committed to Christ, I sure wouldn't feel this way. Because if I, I mean, after, after 10 years of being a Christian and I still want to sin in, in these ways against Him, what kind of a person am I? Or things like, uh, I can't believe I'm going through this again and to the severity that I am because God must be so super disappointed in me because I thought I had victory in this area before. Or why I, God must be super disappointed in me because everything in my being wants to sin against Him. Why, if I love Him so much, would I want to sin against Him so badly? Again, you see the, the self-talk and the possible condemnation we can go through. But again, Jesus was going through this temptation to avoid the cross and to sin against His Father, yet never embraced it. He never embraced it. Because the New Testament tells us He died without sin. So even though he died without sin, the New Testament also tells us that he did not die without temptation to sin. <laughs> That's why the devil went after him three times in the, in the wilderness in the, after he got baptized. He went after him, so Jesus was clearly full, was tempted on multiple occasions. Now this has massive implications for us as followers, and Hebrews tells us why. Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 18 says this, Since he himself was tempted in that which he had suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Uh, Hebrews 4.15, and I like even more, he says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, for us, this is amazing because, because we know that Christ had to fight this inner battle to obey the Father or not, and was able to have victory over it, we can also go to Christ in prayer to help us through our most trying moments. Right? I mean, Jesus knew what it was to hunger. He knew what it was to thirst. He knew what it was to need sleep, feel pain, feel rejection to be tempted, all of these things. He knew what it was of his inner, inner desire to move from entertaining sin to embracing it, and yet never did. So again, we can come to him knowing that he's experienced everything that we're going through. And I highly doubt, as much as the temptations we've faced, I highly doubt they're ever probably as severe as his. Have you ever sweated blood over your issue? If you haven't, Jesus has experienced more temptation than you have, and I have for that matter. So again, we can go to him knowing that he had victory. It's possible to have victory. Let's look at how Jesus got through it. You see it in verse 28. He says, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, in the midst of temptation, Jesus cries out to God, and focuses in the midst of it of honoring his name. Right? He's crying out to God and he says, Father, glorify your name. So in the midst of it, his main focus, his main purpose is that God's name be exalted, glorified, honored in the midst of it. This was an ultimate driving force for Jesus in helping him make a decision not to embrace the sin, to uphold God's reputation. And I think we could learn a lot here 
because I'm not sure in the midst of temptation how often we make it our focus to do that. But it might change the way we handle it if we think about the name of the Lord and His name being glorified in the midst of temptation. I want to finish with one final thought. And this is where my theology for me really changed. It wasn't so much in the temptation aspect, but in God's response to Jesus in the midst of it. It's radically changed my viewing and understanding of God's love for me, knowing how he responded to Jesus based on the inner turmoil he was facing and going through, even though he knew his son was considering ditching his plan for him. You see, after he says, glorify your name, and he's considering all these negative thoughts in his head, a voice comes out of heaven and says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus, uh, God only spoke three times publicly in, in Jesus' ministry that other people could hear. His baptism, the transfiguration on the mountain, and here. So the fact that he speaks here is significant. And basically what God is doing here is putting a stamp of approval, a stamp of approval over Jesus and, and what he's going to do. Right? He says, I, I want to avoid the cross, but I will be obedient to you despite my emotions. I'll still be obedient to you. And God says, I've glorified it, I've glorified it again. In other words, I'm in favor of what you of the cross, and I'm going to be in favor of the cross in the future. Now, what, here's what he doesn't say. Because, again, the self-condemnation in us, here's what he could have said. Jesus, I am so disappointed you in, as my son. Well, how come? Well, I can't believe you feel this way about me. You know why you came. You know the prophecies. Why all of a sudden would you want to ditch me now? Or, if you truly love me, then why are you feeling this way about the purposes and my plan and my will for your life? He doesn't. While Jesus is wrestling in his most intimate, darkest moments with, with his relationship with obeying God, that intimacy that they shared didn't diminish, and God didn't love him any less. <laughs> There's nothing in the relationship that is putting them in jeopardy. See, God wasn't concerned with his son's inner temptations, but evaluated him by his willingness to, to obey despite the emotions he was facing. Right? It didn't matter how he was feeling that was the issue for God. It was whether he would obey him in those feelings that was the issue for God. And again, that's a huge lesson for me back then, and I hope it is for you, that if you ever think that God was going to look down on you because your emotions, everything in your being is saying, disobey, 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 and you want to cave to temptation, you can now realize that God isn't evaluating you by that. He's evaluating you by, um, he's not saying there's any loss of intimacy or any loss of love for you. His evaluation is based on whether you'll continue, whether you'll obey him or not and embrace his interests above man's despite the inner turmoil you're facing. That's real faith. It takes faith to obey God despite everything in your being saying don't. I think it takes less faith to obey him when everything in your being saying, I'd love, to, I'd love to do this on behalf of the Lord. That's easy. Those that have, have been married, it's, we can relate to that, right? Easier to love your spouse when they're nice to you or when, when they're kind of been a little bit off that week. <laughs> right? 
It takes more faith to obey God's scriptures in Ephesians 5 to love and respect your husband and wives when everything you're being is saying they don't deserve it. It takes more faith to, to honor them in that way in those moments. I realize that there's more verses in this passage, like I've said, but this was such an important topic that I wanted to focus on it. And there's five important lessons that I don't want you to miss from this passage. First one is this. Temptation itself is not sin. But sin has to be a viable option in order for one to be tempted. It's like a tongue twister, but it makes sense, I hope, right? If you're not a sinner because you feel tempted. And again, I think in the Christian communities we often go there. Oh, I'm tempted, so I must be sinning. No, you're not. You're not sinning yet. But sin has to be a viable option in order for you to be tempted. Remember last week's sermon with the crossroads? So here's God's way, and here's your way. And so all oh, you're standing at this crossroads. Now sin is an option down here, and God's way and His purpose is down here. So again, that's the temptation of standing at the crossroads, which one to choose, but you haven't entered into sin yet. But it has to still be a viable option for the temptation to be real. I want to talk just briefly on this, especially to the young people, and probably, and especially the men, the young men within our, within our circles here. In the area of sexuality, I think the church uh, in general um, kind of doesn't always address this issue very well, and uh, we're included in that. Um, but I, I want to say here that often in Christian circles, when men are tempted, whether they're married or not, when they're tempted in the area of sexuality to uh, go opposite to God's design, they often start to feel condemnation for that. Oh, if I was more faithful to my wife, or if I was more faithful to my fiance, I wouldn't feel this way towards her. Or, right? or if I was a stronger Christian, I wouldn't have such these strong sex drives and so on and so forth. Listen, you have not sinned when you have those urges and you're thinking those thoughts. You haven't sinned yet. All you have done is seen this as a viable option. And let's think about this. Who invented the sex drive anyway? Was it you? You think God's surprised when you have this desire? Do you think God's surprised that you find people attractive? Do you think God's surprised that he gave you sensitive body parts? <laughs> he invented this. He made it happen. So there's, he's not going to make, give you something that's quote-unquote sinful and then turn around and condemn you for it. He's saying, no, this is, this, is a, this is what it is to be created in my image that has to have this, this desires and these desires. But I ask you in those desires to go my way. So again, God's not surprised by the temptations we face in the sexual arena, but sin, that, that, the, the ability to go down there and to sin and embrace it is a viable option. We'll probably get into that more in the dialogue, I'm sure. Second lesson. Temptation becomes sin when a person no longer entertains it as a viable option, but then embraces it. Right? So when does temptation become sin? When it's no longer a viable option just in your head, but you actually embrace it. That's why Jesus wasn't, was sinless. All the pull to not go God's way was there, but he chose not to, right? Oh, God, save me from this hour. But, for this purpose, I've come. So, I've, everything in my being saying, don't go your way, but I'll go your way. 
James speaks about this very well. If you want to write a cross-reference, James 1, 14 and 15, I'll read it to you. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now what's interesting there, he's just saying one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust means like your lust, like your, your, all of your flesh wants to have a certain thing that's opposite to God. That's temptation. But then he says when it's conceived, then it gives birth to sin. So prior to his conception, there is no sin. And that, what's interesting in the, the word entice is, to, is a fishing term. So when you throw a lure into a water with a, with a, with a hook, uh, that's, um, that, that enticing is the dangling of that lure in the water getting pulled along the water. And when, you, when it's conceived is when the fish bites. So when you're baited, that's when it's sin. So the temptation is like you chasing the lure, like you're, or you're thinking about the lure as it goes by you, but you're not sinned yet. But as soon as you bite that hook and you're baited, then now you've, now you've embraced it. Again, this is why Jesus was never sinned. And even though he struggled with what Peter struggled and his entertaining of it and setting his mind on God's interest or man's interest, he never embraced it. So when you're in your head, when you have this massive pull to want to gossip, when you're in a circle of people, and they're gossiping about someone, and everything in your flesh wants to elevate yourself, to, to, to jump in and slander that person, you're, this lure is dangling by you, dangling by you. But you haven't sinned yet. Only if you bite and join in the conversation and get baited, are you, are you guilty. If you don't, if, even if all the negative thoughts about, oh, I shouldn't think this about this person, and, and all these types of things, that's not sin. That's the flesh saying, giving, is giving you a battle of whether you should join in or not. So you don't have to condemn yourself because you have the thoughts. You, the, the, the guilt comes when you actually jump in. Telling the truth. I speak to the young kids in here especially. Anybody under teenage years especially. Right? Your biggest struggle as a kid is to want to tell your mom and dad the truth. Because they ask you lots of questions and the first thing you want to do is probably lie. Because you want to protect yourself and make sure you're going to be okay. And God says, there's a fishing hook going by you. And he's, and he's saying, and the fishing hook is saying, you, have the, you can lie, but you don't have to lie. And as soon as you bite the hook and you lie, now God says you're guilty of sin. <laughs> right? And that's why you need Jesus as a Savior, because He comes to forgive you of those things. So again, the option to sin or not to sin or embrace it is all within your own power. Lesson three. Temptation can often be very emotionally painful. Jesus is in agony over this issue. He's so troubled that he's agitated, he's shaken up to the point that he wants to go the, the way of Peter in his thinking. And he tells Jesus in the garden, take this cup from me, take it. He says to, to God, save me from this hour. And he sweats blood because of the anxiety he has. Listen, temptation is very real and can often be very painful. As humans, we love to pamper ourselves, assert ourselves, protect ourselves. Again, um, we love to do all these things, but in the, in the, in the midst of temptation, it goes against those things. They, 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 they just, um, actually, that is a form of temptation, right? Let me rephrase that. When, when you're tempted, you, it's, the temptation is to elevate yourself, is to pamper yourself, is to assert yourself, protect yourself. And God says you have to deny yourself. Last week's sermon, deny yourself. So again, temptation is a really, really, can be often a strong emotional pull. 
That's why Jesus asked God to take it away because the burden is so great. And lesson four. In the midst of temptation, we can turn to Christ in comfort, knowing he had victory over it. Again, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, Jesus was able to overcome all temptation, and that's why we can go to him knowing that he had victory, and he can relate to the things that we're going through. You're not going to tell him anything he doesn't know, anything he hasn't experienced. He's been there, done that, and defeated that. And you're not, you're not the only one, you're not alone, and uh, you can go to him in comfort, knowing that he's experienced the very things that you're going through. But Jesus' motivation in this temptation to get out of it was to bring glory to God. That's the way of him showing, himself, showing love for him. A great example of self-denial. And we can do the same. And finally, remember that in the midst of temptation, God is still intimately connected to us to the same degree he was before the temptation occurred. I, I, I worded that intentionally. Because if you go in, and I'm making up numbers, I, this is like a bad example, but I'll use it anyway. If you go in out of, out of a 10, with, with God as a, at a 7, you come out, if you, if you pass the temptation test, you're still at a 7. Like, in other words, like you, you don't go in as a 7 and come out as a 4 in the midst of temptation, right? But you come out, you come out, you go into that temptation, and you face it with this intimate relationship with God to a certain degree, and you come out to the same degree, or maybe even greater for that matter, because he's, because he's proud of you. But what I'm saying is, like, you don't lose this intimacy or connection to God despite the temptation, no matter how horrific it is. I mean, again, like, we're never going to experience anything worse than Christ, and yet he never lost favor with God. And that, that is so important, especially for those of us who have learned to self-condemn ourselves within the Christian circle, thinking that all of our temptations, God must look down upon us. He does not. He looks to whether you'll embrace his way despite the emotional temptations you're going through. So it's not what you do, sorry, it's not how you feel, but what you do in the midst of those temptations.